right, good morning, transit family. Feel free to grab a seat, grab a seat. If I haven't met you yet, it's your first time here, welcome. My name is Nick, I'm one of the pastors here, and uh, from the pulpit at the transit, we like to go through books of the Bible, so we are in Ephesians. Today we'll be in Ephesians 3, chapter 3, verses 1 through 6, so if you have your Bibles, turn them on or turn to Ephesians 3, 1 through 6, and as you're doing that, I want to ask a question. Who here growing up had a grandma like I did or grandparents like I did? Wherever, whenever you saw them, they decided to give you cash. Anyone have that blessing? Don? Anyone? Just me and Don? Oh, can you? Okay, some of us here. Okay, good, good. So my grandmother uh, was Ukrainian, and so in high school and college, I'd go over there. I'd take some of my buddies. You've got to get, if you ever want a good Eastern European cooking, this is where you would go. And without fail, she'd cook us this big dinner. We'd be at the dinner table, and then she would, you know, get her, her cane and, and go over to her bedroom where her purse was, and she'd come back, and I knew what was happening. Almost every time, without fail, it was $20. And she, yeah, it was, yeah, someone was like, yeah, 20 bucks. In college, that's, that's like, that's a lot of money, man. That's like winning the lottery. Especially, 20 bucks went a lot farther uh, when I was in college, and I won't say when, but... And she would uh, demand that I receive this gift. And I would do what every good grandkid would do. Would initially, you resist, right? No, I don't need it. I'm good. I have a job. Don't, okay, I'll take it, right? <laughs> I'll take it. And, but when she gave me something that belonged to her, and then there was a transfer, before the transfer, uh, that gift went from her hands and was transferred into my hands, and then I was the owner of that $20 bill, she had this refrain almost every time she would say, I'm giving you this money, but in a thick Ukrainian accent, don't waste it, Nick. Nick, don't waste it. Don't waste it, right? That was what she would say. She was, you steward this well. Steward this well. Don't waste this gift I'm giving to you. And so the reason I share that is today we're talking about stewarding the gospel. It's what Paul talks about today of um, in our text, we've seen in the first uh, couple chapters of uh, Paul's letter to the Ephesian believers, as he's all that he has been talking about and proclaiming is everything that God has given to us in Jesus Christ. Everything we possess, everything we have because of Jesus Christ. And now, the latter half, this actually starts in Ephesians 4, but Paul's talking about him personally, how he was called to steward this gospel to the ends of the earth, to the Gentiles. And so today we're going to be looking at what does it mean to steward a gift, to steward the gift of God's grace shown to us, the gift of the gospel. How do we do that? And as I was praying into that, um, I had this realization. Before we talk about how, this is probably going to be a two-part message because uh, uh, this division of the text in Ephesians 3, 1 through 6, really, if we're going to go for the whole continuation of thought, should go all the way to verse 13. But here we are, all right? And we prefer to move at a snail's pace through Ephesians because it's that good. So two-part series. Maybe next week we'll talk more about application-specific how-to. But what I want to focus on is before we talk about the how-to, we need to be reminded of what we've truly been given. And then when we understand the immensity and the magnitude of what we receive, then we'll know. Almost inevitably, we will know what we're to do with what we've been given. When we understand what we've been given, we'll understand how to steward it. So three points. We'll read this text and pray are there three points if you're taking notes? I've been encouraged to talk slower when I mention my points. So I'm going <laughs> to talk slower. You know who you are. I love you. Thank you for saying that. Um, it wasn't my wife. All right. Uh, point number one, what we've been given is priceless. Point number two, what we've been given is powerful. And what we've been given is plentiful. I'll make more sense of that last line as we get to that point. What we've been given is priceless, powerful, and plentiful. Let's read Ephesians 3, 1 through 6. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. And this mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Let's pray. Father, we're gathered here to lift up our chins and remind ourselves of who you are and where you're seated and everything we have because of your goodness in our lives. 
And Lord, I pray that through your word, you would remind us of what you've given us today and, and what you want to see done in our lives through what you've been, through what you've given to us, Lord God. So remind us, Holy Spirit, illuminate the scriptures to us. Holy Spirit, show us the, the worth and the value of Jesus. Come, Holy Spirit, I pray that you would have your way. It would be your will that you would apply this to our hearts. Would you break away any hardness, any apathy, any lukewarmness? And would you open the eyes of our hearts so that we can see you rightly and respond accordingly, God? So show us how to be great stewards today of what you've given us, Lord God, for the glory of your name, for the good of others, for the advancement of your kingdom. So would you come, would you have your way with your people and your word? Would you increase and would I decrease? And we pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. All right, so what we've been given, point number one, is priceless. The first thing that sticks out, if you read uh, this text in verse one, is how Paul describes himself. He says this, he says, I, Paul, a prisoner of Jesus Christ, a prisoner of Jesus Christ on behalf of you Gentiles. Now, quick reminder, if you've been with us for a few months as we've been in uh, Ephesians, we know that Paul, as he's writing this letter uh, around 62, 61, 62 AD, he's imprisoned in Rome. Uh, and, and, and here's, before, and, and before I like just slowly gloss over that, we're going to hone in on that. We're going to camp out there a little bit, okay? Um, because what Paul says as he's in prison in Rome, if you were to ask him, hey, Paul, why are you in, in jail? Was it theft? Was it robbery? He says, I am a prisoner not of Rome. I'm a prisoner of Jesus Christ. That Jesus Christ is the reason that I've lost the liberty, uh, liberties and freedoms that other Roman citizens enjoy. So when you're imprisoned, you lose certain liberties, certain freedom of choice, right? Like all of you woke up today and you decided when you're going to wake up. Unless you have kids, and maybe your kids were like, hey, this is when you're going to wake up, right? You decided what you're going to eat that morning. You have the freedom to choose what you're going to eat. You had the freedom, I want to wear this outfit. I'm going to wear this outfit. You had the freedom to come here or not to come here, right? That's basic freedoms that we take for granted. If you're in jail, you do not enjoy those freedoms. And yet what is so amazing about what Paul is saying, and if you read a lot of his letters that he wrote from from jail, they're called the prison epistles that he wrote, and Ephesians is one of them, there is not an ounce of self-pity or moaning and groaning at all. Instead, a man writing from jail who is awaiting his execution, by the way, um, is doing nothing but for the first half of this letter, praising God for how good God is to him and to his people in Christ Jesus. That's crazy. That's wild. There's no self-pity, just praise and gratitude. And the reason that joy in the midst of suffering is possible, of losing your life. I mean, he lost his life. Paul could have spent his life doing anything. He had great plans to become a Pharisee of Pharisees, to climb the, the, la the corporate ladder in Jerusalem and the you know, all that stuff. Like, he, he had his whole life planned out, and then there came a day where he encountered the living, resurrected Jesus, and everything changed, and everything changed for him. So how is it possible that he loses everything, but yet claims he possesses everything? Well, the, Paul's repeated refrain when he talks about his suffering in his letters to the church is he says, for this reason, for the sake of Christ, for the cause of Christ, I am suffering. For the cause of Christ, I am in chains. Meaning this, Jesus is worth suffering for. Jesus is worth taking the hit. Jesus is worth the cost. The cause of Christ, for the sake of Christ, for the gospel going to the ends of the earth, for salvation going to the Gentiles, which I've been entrusted with, it's worth it. I wouldn't change it for the world. I have no regrets at all. Paul's probably only regret is he, had, he didn't get to share more. Probably the only regret that he's now chained is that now he's contained and he can't go travel to the ends of the earth. That's probably his only regret. No regrets. Jesus and the cause of Christ is worth suffering for. And what Paul's refrain was, the grace I've been shown and the God I've come to know is priceless. You can't put a price tag on that. And so you all, uh, you know, we shop, and if you're really interested in buying a product, you always scope out the return policy on that item, right? Hey, what's the uh, 30 days 
if I don't like how this thing works, I had certain expectations of what this thing is supposed to do, and if I don't like it, can I return it for its, for its, its, its value, right? If you shop at Aldi, it's twice as nice. I think you get reimbursed for the value, and you also get another. It's pretty awesome. You should, that's another reason you should shop at Aldi. Boom. Didn't get paid to say that, but i just giving you a heads up. All right. Paul, after Paul's first beating for sharing the gospel, after his first shipwreck at sea, after his first imprisonment, he could have returned. There could have been a return policy on that. All Paul had to do to acquire his freedom is just, freedom is just renounce his faith. Say, yeah, yeah, I made all that up. It wasn't true. Uh, I made a big mistake. Caesar is Lord, not Christ. Boom, free. He can wake up. He can get freshly roasted coffee, all the things he used to enjoy. Right? He can do all of that. All he has to do is say, you know what? Let me return this. Where do I sign? What's the return policy? And Paul's saying, I'm not, I'm not returning anything. There is no return policy. I have found what I'm looking for. There is no, like, like, like if you put the scale, if you put Jesus on the scales of life, the worth of knowing God and, and, and safety and comfort for Paul, Paul says, I lay it all down for what I've gained in knowing Christ Jesus. This is what he says in Philippians 3, 7 through 8. He says, whatever, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. What Paul's saying here is getting Jesus, knowing the living God, being shown grace, being reconnected to the source of everlasting life forever, getting Jesus, but also getting a life of tremendous, agonizing suffering is worth it. Sign me up all day, is what he says. I'll take that deal any day of the week. And the flip side is this, getting everything you could ever want in life. The American dream. Got a house here, got a house in Breck house on the beach, mailbox money from all your investments, you're set, your family's set, man, you've made it. You got the car you've ever wanted, you got the sports car, the big car, the little car, motorcycle, you got it all, right? I'm just revealing all my idols right now. Um, <laughs> pray for me. All right. Uh, the flip side of what, what we're learning here today about the, the priceless nature of what we've been given is getting everything you could ever want in this life, but not getting Jesus is a life completely wasted. Do, do we believe that? Right? Getting everything. It's not, it's not Jesus plus the American dream. It's just Jesus. He's enough. He's sufficient. If I possess Christ, if I've been given Christ, I have everything I need until God takes me home to glory. I have what I need. I have what I need. I love the, the song. Um, I think it's just, the song is just entitled, Give Me Jesus. And the refrain with that is, you can have all this world. Just give me Jesus. Just give me Jesus. And so the reason I'm sharing all this is when we understand the priceless nature of acquiring our Savior, being reconnected to God, the source of everlasting life, we can learn the same contentment that the Apostle Paul learned by the grace of God, by the Spirit of God. Um, and contentment comes, this is when contentment comes, when our ultimate source of hope, our ultimate source of comfort, our ultimate source of peace, our ultimate source of life, our ultimate source of joy is found not in good circumstances, but in knowing the resurrected Christ. That's where contentment comes from. So uh, I'm going to quote a Puritan. Uh, it's always a good, good start. Jeremiah Burroughs, I'm, I'm reading out of Snail Pays this book, this book called The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment. And I was reading this this week. And I found this quote, and it was absolutely beautiful, talking about the contentment that only God can bring us. And this is what he says. Kind of old English, but I'll do my best to help you interpret. When I have got this grace of contentment, I am prepared to be contented in all conditions. Thus, you see that contentment brings comfort to a man's life, fills it full of comfort in this world. The truth is, it, it, watch this, it is even heaven on earth. What is heaven but the rest and quiet of a man's spirit? That is the special thing that makes the life of heaven. There is rest and joy and satisfaction in God. So it is a con in a contented spirit. 
So it is in a contented spirit. There is rest and joy and satisfaction in God. In heaven, there is singing praises to God. A contented heart is always praising and blessing God. You have heaven while you are on earth when you have a contented spirit. Amen. Hallelujah. Oh, my gosh, right? Doesn't that just resonate? Don't you want that? Haven't there been seasons in your life where you've experienced the peace of Christ in really agonizing circumstances, knowing that heaven has invaded your heart, even though the world seems to be on fire, but the peace of Christ is guarding your mind and guarding your heart, that peace that surpasses all understanding? And so what Paul is saying, the implication of of contentment in Christ and the priceless nature of of possessing Christ is, is this. If Paul is in jail, awaiting execution, if Paul is in jail, but my friends, he is still in Christ Jesus, then he's still firmly rooted and grounded in his source of hope, love, joy, and peace. That cannot be taken from him. So if he is in jail, but my friend is still in Christ Jesus, then he's still firmly rooted in his ultimate satisfaction, being in Christ Jesus. And the reason I want to highlight this is until we first realize the priceless nature of knowing Jesus, we won't know how to steward the gospel well. Why? Because we won't be willing to suffer for the sake of the gospel. Because the way you steward the gospel is through sacrifice. It comes at a cost. Meaning this, when you follow Jesus, meaning like there's a cost to following Jesus, is in order to follow Jesus, you're going to lose some things along the way. That's why Jesus says count the cost if you're going to follow me. There's certain things that if you bend your knee to the lordship of Jesus and every day you're crying out the Lord's Prayer, God, may it be your kingdom, your name, your will, not my own, there's going to be a, there's going to be a lot of things you're going to have to let, let go of. That could be financial security, right? That could be radical generosity. That could be a, a calling to move, to be a missionary overseas, to put your family uh, out, of a, out of the suburbs into a very dangerous area. Um, that could be your reputation in your family and at work. That could be relationships forfeited. Right? There's a cost. But if Jesus is worth it, then there actually isn't any cost because we've gained everything we need. The far surpassing value of Jesus turns everything that we might lose along the way. Uh, 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 Paul calls it in Philippians 7, he calls it a, a rubbish, right? You can take money. You can take my house. You can take my freedom, I got Jesus, even though physically I'm bound, internally Jesus set me free, right? Internally I'm free. I've been reconnected to the source of life. I've been brought to new life. I've been made alive in Christ Jesus. And so the truth of Paul's life and ours, and I'll segue to our our second point, is this. There is no greater king worth pledging our allegiance to, and there's no greater kingdom and cause to lay down our lives for. There's no greater king worth pledging our allegiance to, and there's no greater kingdom to lay down our lives for. And when we believe this, we'll gladly take the hit and steward this gospel well by constantly sharing what God has given us with others, no matter the cost that comes, because Jesus is worth it. Secondly, what we've been given is priceless, but also what we've been given is powerful. And why do I mention power? Why is this important? Well, one, Scripture emphasizes it. Just read to the end of Ephesians 3, which we'll be talking about in a couple weeks. But here's the deal. Here's why I want to emphasize this in regards to stewarding something. And stewardship is, we're going to talk about that in a little bit, what that is, but it's simply sharing what's been given to you. If, here's, here's what I'm getting at. Here's what I'm talking about power. Simply put is this. If you and I don't believe in the effectiveness of something, we won't share it with others. We'll shelve it. Like if I don't believe this is effective, that this has power to change your life, I'm going to keep it to myself. I'll keep it in the closet. Uh, Easter Sunday, my family, we uh, did an uh, Easter brunch, not brunch, but uh, afternoon, whatever, feast after Easter at my parents' house. And my brother-in-law got these things called duck donuts. Has anyone ever had duck donuts before? Someone say, preach, Nick. I'm about to, okay? I'm not a big donut. Confession, I'm not a big donut guy. That wasn't in my, my idolatrous dream of having all the donuts I could ever want, okay? Like, take it or leave it, all right? But there was a donut at Duck Donuts called the Maple Bape Gig Donuts. <laughs> yeah. Uh-oh, he's preaching now. Yeah. The Maple Bacon Donut. You all know. Yeah, someone's about to get out of their chairs and testify. So I took a little bite. I was just going to try it out. It's like got bacon bits on it, and uh, this thing was kind of hot off the press. I mean, man. 
So I take a bite of this, and I about, I mean, I about just, I just about fell over. It was, I about hit the floor. But in an instant, in a moment, I became an evangelist for this donut. And I actually, ah, no, but this, go further down the line. Okay. Why? And what was my refrain? I legitimately, if if you you know me for a little bit, I don't know where I stole this from or why I say this, but if I really believe in something, I went, I told everyone in my family, I said, this maple bacon donut, this is what I said, I said, this will change your life. That was my refrain. There's power in this donut to change your life. That's, I mean, that's verbatim. I was like, you have to try this. I don't care what your thoughts are about bacon. I don't care if you're vegan, pescatarian, whatever, meatitarian. Like, you got to try this. It'll change your life. Right? Why? Why was because I had tasted and seen, like we were seeing about the goodness and the power of this thing to change your life. I wasn't ashamed. I was sold out on duck donuts. And clearly, I'm, hung, I'm getting hungry just talking about this. I was confident in its power. I was confident. I knew not everyone would like it, but I knew that probably 80% of the people would like it. In Romans 1.16, Paul says this. He says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. I'm not ashamed to be identified with Christ. I'm not ashamed to be imprisoned for Jesus. I'm not, a, I'm not a, ashamed to, to, to bear the reproach of Christ and suffer for his sake. I'm not ashamed. Why, Paul? Tell us why. He says why. And he mentions the word power. He says, because it, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. Paul was sold out on the power of the gospel, so much so that God commissioned him to go to the nations, i.e. the Gentiles, and proclaim the power of God in Christ Jesus to bring salvation to every person of every tribe, of every tongue, every, 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 uh, every nation, that go testify. And it was almost as that, 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 that Paul had so much power to go out of Jerusalem and to the ends of the earth where they've never heard the name of Jesus, that he had so much power that he knew that as he went, God would go with him. The gospel would go with him. That salvation would come. That that thing, no matter where you bring that beautiful message, that beautiful proclamation of the gospel, stuff happens. People's lives are changed in Ephesus. People's lives are changed in Philippi. People's lives are changed throughout the cross of, across, the, across the continent, across the globe. And this isn't just uh, me talking through scripture. The empirical evidence of history gives evidence to the fact that there's power in the gospel. Because Paul could say all day, we could read Ephesians 3, 1 through 6, and I've received this, this mystery, and we've talked about this in the past in, in our sermon series. The mystery isn't like a puzzle to figure out. It's something that was hidden, but now has been revealed in Christ Jesus. The, the, the plan of salvation to bring the Gentiles, the nations, into the, the fold of God. It's going out of the four walls of Jerusalem to the ends of the earth. So Gentiles are in the fold of God. And uh, what happened historically wherever Paul went and preached the gospel, is salvation came. And so if that was just a cute thought or an idea he had that, hey, let me take this out of Jerusalem and to the ends of the earth, but there was no truth and there was no power behind what he was saying, you and I would still be in our sins. Like, like it wouldn't have happened. It wouldn't, it, there wouldn't have been a, a, an effect behind it. And yet what we see through the book of Acts is that when he went, salvation came. Wherever he went, wherever he went proclaiming that gospel, salvation came to the ends of the earth. And you and I are recipients of that ministry, of the way Paul has stewarded, the way Paul stewarded the gospel, you and I are recipients of him laying down his life saying Jesus is worth any cost that can be paid. Um, I think that's the reason he was so willing to, to travel and to suffer and, and all those things was he knew, he knew the power. And so then we need to ask ourselves is why don't we often have that same confidence that Paul had? You might be like, well, Nick, I didn't take a trip up into the third heaven and get some, you know, <laughs> some amazing revelation if you've read uh, what Paul talks about in 2 Corinthians. Anyways, but why? Right, why? And I think there's a lot of reasons why uh, we have a tendency to be embarrassed by the gospel. We want to shelve the gospel and kind of back up and not be associated with, with Jesus and public settings. And, and instead of saying, I'm not ashamed, saying, ah, I'm kind of ashamed. I'm not, not fully ashamed, but a little bit ashamed. Why, why is that? Well, I think we, we often don't believe in the potency and the power of the gospel. And the reason why is, is, I think this, I think one of the primary reasons why, not the only reason why, is this. 
I think we, potentially, we being the church at large, primarily maybe in America, uh, have neglected the necessity of the Holy Spirit in advancing the kingdom of God. We've neglected, and I chose my words carefully, the necessity of the empowerment of the Holy Spirit for the advancement of the gospel. You cannot read the New Testament, the Gospels, Acts, and Paul's letters, and minimize the, the necessity of the Holy Spirit to accomplish what God has entrusted the church to. The entire book of Acts is this theme. The necessity of the empowerment of the Holy Spirit for life and ministry. If we were asked, well, how did the early church bring the Gospels to the ends of the earth? The New Testament clearly lays that out. It's through the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. Don't take my words for it. Never take my words for it. Acts 1.8. Jesus, but you will receive, what's that word? Power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And, and what's the outflow of that power? And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And the rest of Acts is what it looks like to be empowered by the Holy Spirit to advance the kingdom of God. Let me say this. Being clothed in power to be witnesses actually looks like something. The ministry of Jesus actually looks like something. And just go read Acts and, 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 and write down every activity of the Holy Spirit you see. And that's what it means to be empowered and clothed in power of the Holy Spirit. We see the Holy Spirit speaking. We see the Holy Spirit uh, leading and guiding the church, bringing healing, bring, bringing deliverance, right? If you were here last week, I highly encourage you, if you missed last week's sermon, to go listen to it. It was amazing. It was life-changing. It was powerful. I didn't preach it. Um, and <laughs> so I'm not giving myself credit here. And uh, Jake, uh, our pastoral intern, did, and he connected this beautiful thread of us being going from Ephesians 2. Um, the, let me read Ephesians 2, 22 for you. Turn to Ephesians 2, 22. I think I had this in my notes and I took it out. If it's still on the slide, can you guys throw that up there? Bless you. It's not up there. I took it out. Sorry, guys. All right, Ephesians 2, 22. In him you are also being built together into what? Into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. That we, the church, are the place where God chooses to dwell by his Spirit to manifest his presence. And Jesus said in John 7, if you come to me, if you're thirsty, and out of your heart will flow rivers of living water. And then we see in uh, Ezekiel 47 that the temple, Ezekiel has this beautiful vision of this temple, and from the temple flowed this rivers of living water. Wherever that, the, those rivers of living water, i.e. the Holy Spirit, the presence of God went, healing came, and then Revelation 22 what do we see? That this river of living water will leave the throne. It will go to the nations. And what will it bring? It will bring healing to the nations. And then you study the book of Acts. And the book of Acts is the overflow of the rivers of living water through the church to the nations bringing healing. It was amazing. Go listen. I don't want to preach the last week's message. But that's what it's about right there. And so... It's the same for Paul. I think sometimes we can read Paul's letters and say, well, Paul didn't emphasize that, and that's, well, that's not true at all. I don't think anyone thinks that, but for the sake of my argument, well, no, there are people that think that. But at the end of the book of Romans, um, when Paul continues to talk about the power of the gospel, um, this is what he says. We all focus on Romans 1.16, but we forget, we stop reading at Romans 15, 18 through 19, and look at how Paul describes how his ministry was empowered and how the Gentiles came to faith. Watch how Paul, remember our text, Ephesians 3, 1 through 6 today, is all about um, Paul being entrusted with this message to bring to the Gentiles so that they would believe in Christ and be saved. Well, how did that come about, Paul? Well, he tells us in Romans 15, 18 through 19. For I will not venture to speak of anything except, can you put that verse up there? I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to bring the Gentiles to obedience by word. Hey, uh, Saul, can you uh, throw the verse up there, Romans 15, if you can find it. Uh, next one, Romans 15. Sorry, guys, it's so important that I have to slow down here to get this. Back maybe up further in my notes. It's right after Acts 1.8. There we go. Thank you. Thank you, Solomon. All right. For I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to bring the Gentiles to obedience by word and deed, by the power of signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem and all the way uh, around to uh, Illyricum, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ. So if you were to ask Paul, hey, Paul, 
how did God bring the Gentiles to obedience? How did God bring the Gentiles into the fold of God? And Paul unabashedly says a crystal clear interpretation as he says, by the power of the Spirit, by word and deed, and the power of signs and wonders. It was both the proclamation that King Jesus has come and that he has ushered in a kingdom of healing. And now let me demonstrate to you what that king and what that kingdom is like right? It's both word and deed. It's both proclamation and demonstration. I think where we've gone wrong in the church is this, is we've had um, the audacity, and I have as well, to think that we've graduated above the ministry methods of Jesus and the 12 and the 72 and the early church. That, hey, they believed in the gift of prophecy and the importance of being yielded to the Holy Spirit and believing that God speaks and leads and guides. We've graduated above that. We no longer need to adopt that methodology. Jesus came praying for the sick to get healed and casting out demons of people. Jesus came bringing in a kingdom, preaching the gospel of the kingdom. For the advancement of the kingdom of God, we don't need that anymore. We've graduated above the ministry methods of the 12 and of the 72 and of, and of the early church and the early church fathers. That's audacious. And it's not biblical. It's not biblical at all. If it was needed then, it's still needed today. Yeah, amen, right? It is needed. And here's what's so beautiful about it is for my whole life, I, uh, not my whole life, but I went to seminary and then I got, and this is, then I began to believe this, is that it wasn't needed. I believed, I had the audacity to believe we don't need it. The charismatics, you go do that Holy Ghost Palooza thing and we'll, we'll actually preach the gospel here. And then I rediscovered, I had my life powerfully changed by the, re- the, the real, the, the, the presence of God. It was wild, October 2019. You guys know my story. If you don't grab coffee with me, I'd love to share it with you, okay? God powerfully, radically changed my life. And then I woke up to the reality, holy smokes, God's alive. Holy smokes, he's, he's living, he's present, and he has a lot that he wants to do through his church. There's a lot of brokenness in our world, and those rivers of living water still want to get out of the church. And what I realized through, through my, uh, it wasn't my theology, it was my ideology, put it bluntly, was I want to do everything to say, no, those rivers of living water will not leave this church. And Jesus says in Matthew 23, 23, woe to you Pharisees, you don't enter the kingdom of heaven yourself and you forbid other people from entering it. Jesus Christ died to give us the precious gift of the Holy Spirit. He died to give us the promise of the Father. And we'd be foolish. I mean, it's not even condemning. It's, it's, it's foolishness. We, we're missing out of the rivers of living water that flow through us, the empowerment of the Spirit. And then, and then, and then those waters going to the ends of the earth, being, bringing true, lasting healing to people. And so, so all that to say is I used to think that we had graduated from it. And then um, deliverance found me. God found me. God changed me. And then I was entrusted with something that I never wanted to be entrusted with. And it was a deliverance ministry. And we have a deliverance ministry at this church. I talked about this a few weeks back. Um, but let me tell you where we're at since I last mentioned that. We have an avalanche of people that are coming to get prayer. And, and they're getting powerfully delivered and set free by Jesus. I had something a couple weeks ago that was the closest I've seen to the garrison demoniac and deliverance ministry I've ever seen. Someone powerfully t- had an awful childhood. I'm talking like addicted to drugs, but also trafficking themselves um, to get money. And Jesus coming and entering in and healing what is broken being overwhelmed to love what, what God did. And it was, my, it, was my, my, it was top two favorite ministry moments I've ever been blessed to be a part of was to see the love and compassion that Jesus still has for prostitutes. That's who's being sent to us. How? Through testimonies. Through testimonies. And so we're being over, and I, I was talking to our, our, our prayer ministry leader about all this, and and I was telling Kristen, I was like, here's, here's what's crazy. Like, so say we have, we have 30 people in the pipeline, but say out of those 30, 10 get powerfully delivered. Like, just like you see in the Gospels. When I say powerfully delivered, go read your Bibles. When, when demons manifest, this is what's happening in our, in our, in our prayer meeting. Uh, not all the time, but a, a, a lot this year. And so 10, 10 out of 30 get powerfully. Well, then what do they do? Well, they go tell, and these are people, there's a ton of people outside of our church that are coming, and, and it's just word of mouth. They go, what do they do? They go, and they go tell five other people who know them who know they're not crazy and know that they're changed. You say, what happened? What changed? Well, Jesus Christ set me free. Jesus Christ. And so, so then all of a sudden we go from 30, and then all of a sudden we get 50 more people coming. 
They're saying, I know this person. I saw the, the real, powerful, effective change that the resurrected Jesus by the Spirit brought to this individual. And so then 50 people come. Well, let's say, okay, 20 out of those 50 get powerfully delivered because everyone, not everyone needs deliverance, right? That just might be you and your sinful flesh. And just continue to, to, to buy the Spirit under the grace of God and the fellowship of the saints. Continue to do what not everyone needs it. But then say 20 people get powerfully touched by God, by the Spirit. Their lives are powerfully changed. Well, then they go tell five people. Now do the math on that. Now you have 100 people coming, Right? And that's how revival spreads. What I'm getting at is Jesus is still in the business of healing the sick, uh, setting the captive free, and bringing salvation by the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. And when we begin to open up our hands to that, that's when revival comes. That's when revival comes. His ways are better. We haven't graduated above the ministry model of Jesus. We haven't graduated above the ministry model of Acts in the early church. Sure, this, this, sure, sure, it might be way more comfortable Right? But are, is that what we want? Is that what we want? No, we don't want comfort. Man, we got to see King Jesus magnify this issue of his glory. There is nothing more beautiful than seeing a broken person healed, weeping. And man, they've been through the ringer. And God manifests his love and their life is changed. And they're weeping in love and adoration. And they're describing to you. They're saying, I've never, they've done every, I don't even know the drugs. I didn't know the drugs that they were talking about that they did. I've never experienced this kind of peace in my life. What is this? And they didn't want to leave the meeting. I can't, I don't want to leave. What is this? I don't know what this is. What's happening? It's the Holy Spirit, the presence of God, who's breaking into shame and healing brokenness. That's who I want to minister to any day of the week. That's who Jesus came for, was to seek and save the lost, his ways. We haven't graduated above his ways. We haven't, we, haven't, we haven't reached a new tier in the 21st century. We say we do things differently now than what it clearly says in God's word, clearly says in God's word. And I say this with confidence, not in my experience, but in the testimony of the scriptures. And what God is still doing today, it's beautiful, it's amazing. And the reason I think, you know, these past three years since my encounter with God, and I'm totally going off my notes here, but I will wrap up here soon, sorry, but I'm just feeling something up here. All right, so is this, is I've seen more effective ministry in these past three years than I've seen in 30 years, 30 plus years of my entire life. And these last three years alone, being open, it's only the grace of God, but being open and yielded to the fact that God still has a whole lot that he wants to do through his church by the Holy Spirit. In three years, lost folk coming to Jesus in, in redonkulous ways people getting healed of stage four cancer, uh, uh, people getting liberated, their life changed. I mean, families being restored. I mean, I can't even tell you story after story after story. And I've, I've historically slowly moved at a shepherd's pace here since January 1st, 2021, when I became the lead pastor. But man, this stuff is normative for the church. And we're going somewhere. Acts is normative for the church. And I can't, I can't do this side hustle thing, <laughs> you know, and like keep you guys blind to it, right? And instead of that, there's a beautiful invitation for us. There's a beautiful invitation, not condemnation, a beautiful invitation. Maybe Jesus is still doing what he did. And maybe, and maybe Jesus still wants to do it, not through the pastor, but through us as a church. Ephesians 3.20, I got to move on. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think according to the power at work within us. What does that mean? It means God doesn't stay in our box. And it means that we think maybe God has stopped or, or God can't or that God can't use me. And what Paul is saying, those are really cute thoughts, but God can do abundantly more than you think. He can do more than you think. Oh, well, he can't. You know, or, or, or I believe he can, but he can't do it through me. No, God can do abundantly more than all you could ask, think, or imagine according to the power at work within you through you. And that power to endure suffering and hardship, to endure hard seasons when you don't see God move in mighty ways, when you pray for the sick and they don't get healed, and then you're at their funeral, to empower that, to say Jesus is still worthy, Jesus is still king, his kingdom has still come, and then to also to believe that he still has the power to save, to heal, and to deliver. And so the application today is an invitation that man, if Jesus is still doing this by the Spirit and his gospel is going forth in power, bringing people to salvation and his kingdom is breaking into darkness, pushing back cosmic darkness, let's get in. Put me in, coach. I'm ready to play. Let's go. 
right? There is a lost, dying world that desperately needs the real gospel, the real Jesus, the resurrected Jesus, the real presence of the Spirit. And he's doing it, and he's doing it, and he's got so much more in store for us. It's not condemnation, it's an invitation to, a, to experiencing a, 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 a God that, that, that you could never dare think or imagine some of the stuff that, that he, can, he can do, right? And so that's what it's all about. Let's today, let's, let's, re, let's search ourselves. Let's repent of our unbelief, um, and, and let's begin to ask God to do through our lives and our church not what we want God to do, but what does Jesus want to do? How do you know what Jesus wants to do? Go read the Gospels. How do you know what Jesus wants to do? Go read Acts. Open up your Bibles. It's not what we want. What does Jesus want, right? And man, he's coming for folks. He is coming for folks. He's coming for the brokenhearted. He's coming for those that thought that God was disgusted with them and hated them, and they have a long story of some, some really big sins, and then Jesus comes and breaks in and still shares a table of fellowship with them. It's the most beautiful thing on the planet. All right, lastly is this. Uh, mm, let me see. Last point is this. What we've been given is plentiful. It's plentiful. I'm trying to, I'm trying to up here to see how, how far uh, I want to I not go too long here. Um, what do I mean by that when I talk about plenty? What we've been given is God. God is the gospel. Yes, the gospel is the forgiveness of sins 1,000%. It's the substitutionary atonement of Jesus Christ. And it's the forgiveness of sins so that we can be restored back to fellowship with God, the source of everlasting life. John Piper says God is the gospel. That's who I'm getting that from. And so then the follow-up question well, then is this. Well, what kind of God, what is God like towards his people? Is he the God of scarcity or is he the God of abundance? Is he the God of plenty or is he the God of little? And often in our lives, we kind of have a scarcity mindset when it comes to stewarding our lives for the sake of Christ, stewarding our lives for the sake of the gospel. If I give away my money, if I give away my time, there won't be enough left for me, right? That's kind of the idea we have. And so the result is we kind of white-knuckle uh, our gospel. We white-knuckle our relationship with God, and we don't share as much as we want, uh, as much as we should, because we think maybe that we might write, run out, that if I actually take the hit for stewarding this gospel, the cost that's involved there won't be enough left over for me. And in contrast to that, gospel stewardship is understanding that everything you've been given reaches its fulfillment actually when it's shared with other people. Yeah, so gospel stewardship is understanding that everything you've been given reaches its fulfillment when it's been shared with other people. When it's been shared with other people. In, in, in our text, Paul, one, uh, verse 1, Paul says that his imprisonment wasn't just, he wasn't just a prisoner of Christ, but in a way, he was in prison on behalf of the Gentiles. That him going to the Gentiles and sharing the gospel, the salvation that he enjoyed, actually went to the Gentiles, and therefore he became a prisoner because of that. If he doesn't go to the Gentiles to share his faith, he's not in jail. He's not in prison. Go read Acts. And then in verse 2, Paul says this, the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you. Paul understood the purpose behind him receiving the gift of grace and salvation was to share that with the nations. And I love that line in verse 2. To me for you. Stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you. That is like the definition in four words of stewardship. This was given by God to me for you. Not given by God to me for me. End of discussion. God to me for, for you. And our refrain as followers of Jesus is when we receive any gift of God's grace, whether that manifests in a spiritual blessing or a physical blessing, what we have to have, this refrain is, God surely did not intend this just for me. God surely did not intend this house just for me, this car just for me, this salvation just for me, this grace just for me, this deliverance just for me. God did not intend this just for me. What he's given to me, he wants to give through me to those around me and hopefully to the ends of the earth. And just an awesome encouragement to you guys. So we have Ukrainian missionaries coming in June. Uh, uh, Jess, our outreach team leader, has been in touch with them about their needs while they're here for a week in Virginia. So we sent out an email of all the list of needs. They need housing. They need a car. They need car seats, so on and so forth. Within 20 minutes of that email coming out to our church, all their needs were met. It's amazing. And I got an Excel sheet sent from Jess where not only are their needs met, but there's a long line. There's like three columns of like, okay, well, if this person can't do it, then this person can, then this person can. You guys were like fighting over each other to do what? To steward the gift that God has given you.
for the advancement of the gospel, to welcome the refugee, to welcome those coming from a war-torn country, to encourage them, to serve them as they're here uh, raising support. So make sure you're here on June, I believe it's 17th, they'll be here presenting about what God's doing in Ukraine. To me, for you. From God, to me, for you. And as we lay down our lives for the sake of Christ, what we know is that God, the God of abundance, will abundantly provide for our needs as we lay down our lives. This is what I'm getting at. 2 Corinthians 9, 6 through 8. Paul's talking about financial giving. The point is this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, but God, for God loves a cheerful giver. Verse 8, this is what I'm getting at. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things, at all times, you may abound in every good work. Verse 8, all grace, all sufficiency, all things, all times, for every good work. The idea behind what Paul is saying is that as long as you seek to give away uh, what God has given you to other people, God will sustain you. God will keep giving. The principle is this. The more we give away, the more God will send our way. And not in like a health and wealth and God will just make your life better, but it's mission critical. It's a battle mindset that we're not going to run out of ammo and rations in the mission that God has entrusted to us. Because you can't believe in health and wealth gospel when we're reading letters from someone who's in jail. But yet God has sustained him. Paul is still saying the God of abundance has sustained me to endure this so that his glory still goes to the ends of the earth. You and I will always need, always have what we need when we follow Jesus and we take up our cross to follow him. And then more than that, I'm going to conclude with this. More than that, here's what we see. The more we give away out of the plenty that we've been given, the more we give away, the more we'll actually come to enjoy the work of our Savior. What if the fulfillment of our joy in salvation comes only when we share it with others? What if there's a true depth of joy and fellowship? Band, you can come on up. I'm going to conclude with this. What if there's a true sense of joy in our salvation that only comes when we begin to share that with other people and they taste and see that God is good? C.S. Lewis has this great quote. It's about praise. It's from his book, Reflection on the Psalms. And he says this, but I'm going I'm to take it out of context uh, and use it for evangelism. But he says this, I think we delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise not merely expresses but completes the enjoyment. It is its appointed consummation. It is not out of compliment that lovers keep on telling one another how beautiful they are. The delight is incomplete until it is expressed. The delight is incomplete until it's expressed. Joy in our fellowship with Christ comes when we begin to share that with those around us. That's the, honestly the, the fulfillment of that. To me, for you, for the glory of Christ. For the glory of Christ. And this is why Paul can say, I've been given plenty. And the joy of my life is not hoarding the gospel of salvation, but sharing it with others, even at great cost to myself. Paul's joy wasn't rooted in his safety and security. His joy was rooted firmly in satisfaction with God and then take, taking whatever cost it was to have others share in that cost as well. And so let's, uh, before we take communion, let's put on, God, let's just ask God, God, would you put it on my heart? Who are you inviting me to share this good news with this week? Who are you inviting me to, to, to bring close to the table that I've been brought close to, the table of fellowship with you, God. Would you give me opportunities? Would you help me to see what I've been given and be gladly, give me glad opportunities to in a real way not give a sales pitch but tell people about a real person who's really changed my life, right? So before we take communion, I'll read Philippians 2 about how Jesus shared, the way Jesus stewarded his privileges the way Jesus stewarded his position as king overall, the way Jesus stewarded his wealth was this, Philippians 2, 4 through 11. I'll read this and then we'll pray and take communion. Let each of you not look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, 
even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you that you came preaching peace to those who are far off and peace to those who are near. Thank you, Jesus, that you have prepared a table for us that we are celebrating today. Uh, the cup of, of your blood, your, your wine, God, the, 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 the bread of your body, Lord, you've prepared a table. And just like uh, was said last week, was all that we had to do was bring our weary selves to the well and you offered us a drink. And Lord, I pray that by your spirit, that that would happen today before communion. Lord Jesus, that there wouldn't be any condemnation of what I shared, Lord Jesus, but, but that you would invite all of us, Lord God, situations can be different for all of us. You would invite us to where you want to take us. Lord God, you have great things in store. You have, a, you have an amazing journey for all of us here. You have things that you want to do through all of us this week. There's nothing more exciting than following you, to listen to you, to be led by you, God. And so we say thank you that you've invited us to come and feast and fellowship with you, God. And this came at a cost, God. You, Lord, gave it all. You took the hit. Why? So that the, because of the joy that was set before you, we could share in the joy and the love and the fellowship that you had with God the Father and God the Spirit. You took the hit so that we could be invited into that fellowship of the Godhead. So thank you, Lord. And may we model you and mirror you and image you today in how we invite others into the fellowship that we've enjoyed. Lord God, willing to sacrifice the cost because there is no cost that is greater than the gain of, of having you, Christ Jesus. So thank you, Lord. We celebrate to you today. We celebrate what you've done. And we pray, Lord, that there would be no condemnation, there would be no shame leaving this room, but there would be confidence and faith and love in you and for you that motivates us to confidently go in love, to tell the world about the resurrected King and what he's still doing and what he can do and what he one day will fully do. In Jesus' name.